Good morning, everyone. How many of you stayed up and watched games three, four, and five of the World Series last night? Anybody? Pete, you didn't stay up and watch the end, did you? What time did that happen? Okay, good, good. Pete's the... Okay, all right. I had a Little League Dodger in my home. There was interest, but it waned after about 10.30 last night. Well, it's an honor to be back here at the Calvary Presbyterian Church of Flint. Good to be with all of you. It's a blessing to be back at this church where I've shared significant times uh, at presbyteries and with all of you in congregational meetings and uh, even things like installation services for Pete Scribner. And uh, when you were really scraping the bottom here in your history, sometimes you'd ask me to preach. And so it's a privilege to be back here in uh, your pulpit. I would not have invited you, me back, but uh, your pastor did, so it's good to be here with the Scribners, as Pete uh, mentioned earlier. Let me set the record straight. I think I met Pete because uh, he was working in enterprise leasing and needed to rent vans, and uh, I was a local youth director, or, or, or rent out vans. I needed vans for the youth group, and so uh, I think that's where we met. We're doing the van deals out there in the parking lot. Hopefully we return them clean. If not, we can talk about them afterwards, but uh, it was a blessing. Let me st uh, set the record straight on the Scribner wedding, too. Uh, it was actually not their choice. It was by God's providence that I ended up being the pastor at that wedding. And uh, it was my first English-speaking wedding as a pastor, so I had to brush up on my English a little bit to make it happen. But uh, I had the second-best uh, seat in the house. I got to stand behind Pete as he watched. I got to watch the back of his head while he watched his lovely bride uh, come down uh, the aisle. Uh, we are ble I'm blessed here to be with you this morning, and um, as we consider... Uh, the topic, my topic, is the good news proclaimed in the household. Uh, how many of you uh, are familiar with things like homes and households? Anybody grow up in a home? Anybody currently have a home? Uh, you know, it's interesting. We can relate to that. We can relate to homes and households. One of the things that uh, I almost label an evangelical crisis is that we spend most of our conference time talking about the things that we spend very little of our hours actually doing. Worship's important, but when you look at worship, uh, we only spend a certain amount of hours per week doing that, conferences, uh, even things like outreach, sharing the gospel. We do that. However, we spend most of our life in what God identified in the context ever since Genesis chapter 1, uh, where he said it's right and fitting uh, that men and women marry and have households together and uh, uh, that we establish homes and also the work that's before us. And so most of our lives, most of our waking hours are spent in that context, and it's a privilege this morning to address the topic of the gospel in the home. You know, whenever the gospel goes forth, historically, whenever you see the power of God on display that transforms lives and changes uh, communities, the true gospel of Jesus Christ, the true gospel of his work accomplished for us on the cross and the power of his resurrection, and not uh, so many other Gospels that seem to be continually creeping in. The Gospel of a good rule that we can do for others. Or the Gospel of health and wellness and prosperity. Or the Gospel of what government can do and collective humanity can do together. If the brotherhood and sisterhood of mankind can cure our social ills together. No, the Gospel that Paul described that goes like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scripture. Let's just take a moment to behold the gospel. What is of first importance? What is the gospel that you depend upon? And what is the gospel that we must proclaim in this world and we must not be confused concerning? 
the true gospel of Jesus Christ, as Paul said, of, which is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third days, again, in according with the scripture. You know, whenever you find, historically, or even in times of the Bible, whenever you see this gospel going forth with power, you will find this same gospel alive and well in the household, alive and well in homes, in places where people dwell. You know, we're studying the book of Acts this fall here at uh, the church that I'm a part of at Knox, and uh, Acts is often a book where people love to see the extraordinary work of God, the miracles, the the great events of the power of God on display, the bold preaching that took place in the streets and the synagogues. And yet if you actually study the book of, of Acts, you will find that within that extraordinary work, there is a consistent ordinary work of God transforming men and women as households. Think about households like the Philippian jailer, like Lydia, like Timothy and Eunice and Lois, the household of Cornelius as well. You will find whenever the gospel is going forth with power, there's a transformative work in households. You know, during times of the Reformation, it worked the same way. Great movements of the word of God going forth with power and gospel. And we need it today. We need Reformation returned to his word. You see a strong sense of the gospel being proclaimed in the home, to the home, and through the home. You know, it's interesting, over the last century, if we study the work of the gospel in our culture, in American evangelicalism, we tend to see a little bit of a divorce between the household gospel and the gospel that we proclaim. We like to fill the stadiums, we like the big events, we like to count the numbers. It's better for what we publish and what we blog about, and yet oftentimes we ignore that subtle, quiet work that's taking place in the home. You know, American evangelicalism, and these are things we may still be recovering from over the last century, uh, gave us certain statements that some believed and maybe overbelieved a little bit, statements like, God has no grandchildren. And while that's a statement that we understand to be true and right, because it is true, each and every one of us is called to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ, and that's how we, we are made by God, adopted children of God. But yet when we make a statement like God has no grandchildren, uh, let's also be reminded uh, during a time of Reformation, do we believe that God ordains all things? Absolutely. But do we also believe that God uses ordinary means? And one of those things is quiet and faithful parents parenting in the name of Jesus Christ and grandparents doing the same. Let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater, as Martin Luther used to say. We know that uh, we are called to these things. Billy Sunday also once said, he was the baseball player who became the evangelist 100 years ago. He said, my children are being lost in order that your children can be saved. That was his view of household. Almost, we say, uh, we forsake the household in order that the gospel would be preached. And if you study his history, you will see that many of his children did follow in that pattern. Also consider this. Many of us watched this year the funeral of the Reverend Billy Graham. And my name is also Graham, like the crackers. And so let me comment on the Klan just a little bit. I can speak on behalf of the Klan. You know, it was very evident there was a remarkable blessing that took place in the stadiums and the great movements of the last century when the cameras were there. But if you watch that funeral, if you watch that funeral, and yes, there was a short gathering that took place for a couple of hours there. There was a home in that context. And there in that home, if you heard the eulogies, you saw that God did remarkable things through a couple of farmers who were Billy Graham's parents in his sister's lives in a quiet household worshiping at an associate reformed Presbyterian church quietly in 
the Lord. Again, during times of reformation, during times of God's work of the gospel going forth in societies, you will find it alive and well in the household. John Knox is uh, one of the people we honor during this week, Reformation Week. By the way, I go to the Knox Presbyterian Church, uh, so it's hard for me not to mention in at least one quote uh, this morning, so I'll have to do that. Uh, by the way, when I first came to the church I'm a part of 15 years ago, it was the Knox Presbyterian Church, but I noticed, I noticed when I showed up that though we were the Knox Presbyterian Church, no one wanted to call that. We were called Knox Church, Knox Church. And so after a week or two, I said, how come we're always Knox Church? And they said, oh, you got to understand. you got to understand, new pastor. If you say Presbyterian, if you say that, our neighborhood is filled with many Catholics, and they might not like that with some of the conflicts that's gone on in the past. And I said, uh, do we really want to bring up the name John Knox at this moment, based on what some of his interactions were as well? Many don't even know who the name of John Knox was or is this day, but he stood for the gospel. It's a Presbyterian church here. He was the one who in his times and places stood for the gospel, and we also saw that in the home. Listen to what he wrote. Again, he was one, one who thundered around Scotland and preached in many great pulpits there. But these are the things he wrote concerning the home. No, brethren, you are ordained of God to rule your own houses in his true fear and according to his word. Within your own houses, I say, in some cases, you are bishops and kings. Your wife, children, and servant or family are your congregation and are under your charge. Of, of you it shall be required how carefully and diligently you have always instructed them in God's true knowledge, how uh, that you have studied in them to plant virtue and repress vice. But above all these things, dear brethren, study to practice in life that which the word of God commandeth, and then you assured that you shall never hear or read the same without fruits. And thus much for the exercises within your household. John Knox, again, spoke in great pulpits, transformed a nation, really, and yet understood the importance of these foundations in local homes during his times and his places. Others said the same things. Jonathan Edwards said this, every Christian family ought to be, as it were, a little church consecrated to Christ and wholly influenced and governed by his rules and family education and order of the same chief means of grace. If these fail, if these fail, all other means are likely to prove ineffectual. If these are duly maintained, all of the means are likely to prosper and be successful. You know, there's no doubt about it. We're seeing a breakdown in the home. We're seeing a breakdown of marriage. We're seeing a breakdown of men and women and how God created them as his image bearers. We're seeing a breakdown of consistent home life. And because of that, perhaps that's why we're seeing so much difficulty in understanding the things of God in our culture. If we try to reach out apart from these building blocks... And God is gracious, and certainly he can do as he wills according to his plan. And yet, let us not forsake the consistent building blocks that are required in the home. Richard Baxter said it like this. We must have a special eye upon families to see that they are well-ordered. The welfare and glory of both the church and the state depend on family government and duty. If we suffer and neglect this, we shall undo all. Therefore, if you desire reformation, do all you can do to promote the family religion. If you desire reformation, it must be so in the households. You know, we see it in a pattern of history. We see it in the book of Acts. You know, we also see it in the unified covenant of Scripture. God teaches us the importance of proclaiming the gospel uh, to our home. And so I'd like to use now at this point uh, Deuteronomy 6, a passage that some call the Shema. 
uh, to kind of be our guide to talk about some of the things I would like to speak with you this morning. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, that's the fifth book of the, ten, the Pentateuch. The Deuteronomy comes from two shorter Greek words, deuteros, nomos, which means the second law, the second time that Moses read again the law to the people after the Exodus, you know the account, at Sinai the law was given, and then after 40 years in the wilderness, the second generation, a new household, stood on the far side of the river Jordan on the plains of the Moab, and as they were about to enter a very difficult place, a place that was well fortified, even much more a place with all sorts of the false gospels of this world, uh, they were given one renewing pep talk, one renewing listen up. The word, the law was repeated again. In Deuteronomy 5, that's the context, the Ten Commandments were read once again. And then in Deuteronomy 6, special instruction were given to the people of how in their homes, uh, with their lives, with their deaths, with their own children, uh, they were called to walk in the pattern of the Lord. They were called to honor the Lord in their home. And so I'm going to read Deuteronomy 6 verses 1 through 9 just to frame up some of the thoughts this morning. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you were going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son. Notice the family pattern here. By keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk about them when you sit in your home and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Again, these are words that are given in a very familiar context, familial context. Uh, the people are told here three times in Deuteronomy 6 that they are to fear the Lord their God. And not only are they to fear him and know him, but their children and their children's children, grandchildren as well, are to know these things. We hear many references in the Pentateuch to the third and the fourth generation. Here it is again. By keeping the statutes and commands which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be long. It was Augustine who said, anyone who fears the Lord will be happy, and especially on the day of judgment. You know, it's interesting uh, one of the things that used to be a positive attribute in society, maybe 20, 50, 100 years ago, was to say that so-and-so loved and feared the Lord. The fear of the Lord was a good attribute to have. I've noticed as a pastor that whenever you talk about the words, the fear of the Lord, you get a reaction. And for some, they hate it. God is a God of love. God is a God of mercy. How is he then to be a God to be feared? I've had people actually scream at me as a pastor over the concept that God is to be not only loved, but feared as well. But for others, for others who know the scriptures and see the renewing work they do in our lives, who know, yes, that God is a God of love and God is a God of mercy, but also know that he is holy 
and righteous and sovereign, awesome and all-powerful, they know that it is a, a right sta statement to say to fear the Lord. What does it mean to fear the Lord? To fear the Lord is to revere and worship the Lord your God Almighty in his power, in his majesty, and in his glory. By the way, if there is no God to be feared, and if households and children and grandchildren are not taught these things, then there is no need for Jesus Christ to come and do the great work on the cross and do the great work of the empty tomb in order that we might have peace with our awesome and holy God. There is no Jesus Christ who has brought sinners into the peace of God if there is no fear of the Lord. There is uh, one who is more powerful than the hurricanes, more powerful than the planets and the stars and all the forces of this world, even more powerful than politics, and it is the God that we serve. Israel had just seen the power of the Lord in salvation and uh, they had had a generation walk in the desert, and now they were called not to forget it with the next generations to come. While Jesus Christ sets us free from the terror of God and judgment and condemnation, we are to be a people that still fear and love the Lord. And this uh, passage teaches us these things. Well, let's look at verse 4, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Where we begin the passage that's also called the Shema. Well, the reason this passage is called the Shema is the Hebrew word to hear or to listen up like a coach telling you what to do in this lifetime, is that word Shema. It means to listen. Listen, O Israel. Listen up, God's people. These things you must know and you must know well in your lives, in your children's lives, and in your households as well. The first statement there is, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that is a beautiful phrase here in the Old Testament. A beautiful phrase in English. A beautiful phrase in the original Hebrew as well. We see the names of God. Our awesome God on display, the Lord. Uh, that's Yahweh. That's the name that was so respected that the Hebrews didn't even put the vowels with it in order that the name be used with respect and adoration. The Lord, our God. Our God is the word Elohim. That's the beautiful word of singular plurality or plural singularity. In that word, uh, we see the, the first reference. The fact that our God is triune, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we are given a pronouncement concerning who he is and how we are to hold him. Behold, God's people, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is no other. There are no others. This world is filled with all sorts of false affections and other things to turn to. And yet the Israelites who were marching into a land that served every other God, every other cause, every other philosophy, were told to keep certain things clear. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And now what are we to do with this God that we know to be true, that we know that we answer to who is holy and awesome, how much this world uh, chooses not to portray these attributes. He is all these things. What are we to do then with Yahweh Elohim? Verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Do you recognize this statement? Sometimes in my household we play a little game, name the book of the Bible where this comes from, and sometimes we play a game called, is it the Old Testament or is it the New Testament? Now, this one's actually both. It was said with clarity before God's people here in the Shema. It was also when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? When they came to him, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him in Matthew chapter 22. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul and with all your mind. We are created to know and love the one true God. You know, it's amazing in this command what is asked of us. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind. Not a portion of any of those things. It's not a third, a third, a third. It's not you can skip the one that you don't want this week. It's all of these things. In fact, I remind my congregation, this is the 300% command. 300% of us is called to love the Lord our God. Down in Detroit, before they built the Little Caesars Arena, if you haven't been down there, it's quite a sight to see. But before it was there, there used to be an old building with graffiti on it. And on that building, it said, we keeps it 300%. And that's a household we actually, that's a word we actually use in my own household. We keeps it 300%. It was graffiti. I don't know what it meant by the original author, but it's not a bad way to describe this concept here. With all of who we are, we are called to love the Lord our God. And now with these things being said, the Ten Commandments being given, Yahweh Elohim being the Lord our God who is one, the God that we're called to love with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And by the way, we are unable to love our God, except for the fact that our God who was awesome and powerful first loved us through Jesus Christ, who gave us the cross, gave us his one and only Son, and because he first loved us, we are now called to love him. But now we press forward in these things, and especially look at verses 6 and 7. The Puritans would often comment on these verses, having to teach us what these things mean for us, and they mean for our household. And these words that I command you shall be on your heart. They shall be on your heart. You know, it's interesting, oftentimes people look at this passage, the Shema, and the first thing they think is, how can I teach these things to others? How can I convince my children or my grandchildren of these truths? And God first tells us, these words that I have commanded you are to be upon your heart. You are to have these things. You are to love these things. You are to know God's law. You are to know his graces and mercies. They are to be upon your heart. I don't know if you've ever ridden on an airplane, but uh, I'm a guy who actually likes to watch that same speech they give every time of, you know, where the exits are and what you're supposed to do. And I actually get out the card. I like studying the plane just in case. You never know. But there's that one moment on the airplane, perhaps you've seen it, and it, when I first heard it, I heard it in horror, but then I understand it now. And they say, in the event that the, 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 the plane should depressurize, you'll have oxygen masks that will come down, and you'll see a little yellow bucket, place it on your face, and then you'll begin to breathe again. And they say, by the way, if you're traveling with small children, what's the instruction there? Before you help them, before you help them, you help yourselves. You help yourselves. And that sounds awful at first, right? Because we're a Christ-centered, or a children-centered universe. We should be a Christ-centered universe. We're a children's-centered universe. All things for the children. We give everything to the children, the best that we can give them. You want the best for your children? You want the best for your children, your grandchildren? You want the best for your marriage? You want the best for your neighbors in a local household? You know what the best is? The best you can offer them? Is to be one who loves the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then we'll figure out all the other things. You know, it's interesting, there are many who do outreach these days. In fact, if you get on church websites, there isn't a church that's not doing outreach. Let me tell you about my boyhood church. I'm a lifelong Presbyterian, but I'm very sad for what's happened to Presbyterian denominations. I'm just very sad about it. My boyhood church, I know many who are still there, although there are very few who are still there. It was once a vibrant church on a corner with 500 people. It's still in a great location of two very vibrant streets, and yet, on Sunday mornings, very few come few of the folks I knew from way back when, the 70s. The best thing that's going today is 
They rent it to the Koreans on Sunday evenings, and they fill that sanctuary with songs of the heart. But what's so sad about that church, somewhere along the way, somewhere along the way, they lost the vision of Jesus Christ who died for sinners. They don't use the word sin. They don't talk about the cross. They don't talk about the love of God. They do except when it's for doing things in charity, but the love of God that gave us Jesus Christ. They don't talk about the power of the resurrection. In fact, I've talked to a few of these elders. This is 40 years since. They don't believe in the resurrection. They're not even sure if Jesus was there historically. But let me tell you about their website. Oh, they're reaching out. Nobody comes. But they're doing outreach with a message of hope and outreach with open hearts and open minds and open doors and outreach even with some sports ministries. Outreach that you can come and do whatever you want in this church because it's whatever you want to whomever you want. One of the great problems with evangelism today is that somewhere along the way we forgot the message. We forgot what we were outreaching with. What do we really have? Is it our fellowship? Is it our homes? Is it our models? Are we reaching out with the truth of Jesus Christ? You know, we're almost in a crisis mode a little bit this last month at the church I'm a part of. In a certain sense, not across the board, but we have certain households that really desire for their households the trappings of the things of Jesus Christ. They desire membership on a roll. They desire public baptism. And yet when it's time to worship with their household and with their children... And even to make sure their grandchildren are a part of the things of the Lord this week. Well, we're not really that concerned about these things. We must have the outer trappings. We must have our names on the rolls. We must have things like baptisms. Friends, George Whitfield said it like this about Deuteronomy 6 and 7. May we infer that the only reason why so many neglect to read the words of Scripture diligently to their children is because the words of Scripture are not in their hearts. For if they were... Out of the abundance of the heart in their mouth, they would speak and they would walk in this way. Could it be that the reason that we're looking at the culture that we're looking at and the generations that we're looking at is because we've settled for far less than who our God is? You know, then there's the other side. God still has his people. God still has his grace. Let me tell you a recent story. I'm 25 years ordained at this point, and In my own life, I begin to see that when you've been through an entire generation going through the church, you begin to see things a little bit differently. Let me give a testimony of what one godly household leader can do in one local family. There's a man who used to go to our church, who was an elder of our church, who raised his kids in godly fashion. Four children in the household. As they grew up, the things of Christ were still upon them. There was coming and going. And different times of faithfulness in the church, and yet this was a consistency that went through their lives. All four children on their own grew up. Some struggle greatly with this world and what sin does to it and its accompanying uh, miseries. One of this man's daughters uh, married another man who claimed the faith, and yet it wasn't really there. Uh, Through a period of addictions and all sorts of other things, he would leave the household and the adult parents were now ministering to, or the, the grandparents were now ministering to adult parents and grandchildren as well. But they pressed forward in these things. Even more so, they pressed forward in these things by persevering in Jesus Christ, by being a part of worship, by serving at a local church. And so again, this adult daughter with her own children now was divorced and they took care of them and got her back on her feet. And then several years later, she was diagnosed with cancer. And this woman who had now children... was in her own difficulties and for two or three years again they pressed forward in faithfulness and the truth of loving their God even in the trials you know God not only ordains every blessing for his purposes in your life 
He ordains every trial as well. They pressed forward like this. So much so that three years later, God would call, again, all done in the context of the Lord and brokenness. He would call this woman into his presence. She would die of cancer. Well, now this man who was an elder at our church had three grandchildren. He had already begun the persevering and parenting and was finishing it out of career, was exhausted on his own. And yet at the funeral that day, we all went, we all wept. It was at another church. But I watched him stand up and I watched him account for the goodness of Jesus Christ and his love of the Lord. And because of his presence, God gets all the credit and God gives all the glory, but he used the secondary means. And because this man was there, all three of those grandchildren got up and said, these are tough times and yet we trust in our God. And I watched him even make a very difficult decision. I applauded him in this. That family was actually connected to a different church. This family lost uh, their home. They lost, uh, they had to go live with grandparents now. They lost the school they went to. And I applaud Dick and what he did at this moment. He said, you know what, I'm going to be at a different church for the next four or five years because I am obligated to finish out these children and youth group and what they've been through. I don't want to disrupt them yet again. But I walked away from that week of the funeral and the decisions that were made. What a difference. One godly parent, one godly father, one godly mother, one godly grandparent who's praying and living out whatever they may be able to live out in the context of a local family. These things are to be upon your hearts. Bless the lines of your family by worshiping tomorrow, by being a part of God's word this week, by not settling for what culture is teaching you and the counterfeit messages you're getting bombarded with every day from the world and every day now from the church as well. Lord willing, not this church but so often in the church. Settle for nothing less than the truth of your living God. And now, after your hearts have been properly calibrated, you shall teach these things to your children. You shall teach them diligently to your children. If you still have your Bibles, look at this verse. This is really important. We've lost sight of this. You shall teach them diligently. The old NIV from 1984 said, you shall impress them on your children. Let's talk about that word impress. Let's talk about that word teach them diligently. That's the only time in scripture that this word means to teach diligently or to impress. You know how it's used in every other context of the Old Testament? You know how it's used? It's used when the Hebrews would take their swords and sharpen them on a stone to prepare for war. It's used for the arrows that were used to protect Israel, that they were to be sharpened unto battle. I asked parents, when they were young couples when they're in marriage class, how passive is that? How passive are we supposed to be about the second and third generation? Are we supposed to say a little dulling here, whatever they might find there? No, with everything that we have, we are called to sharpen our children unto the Lord. Are you sharpening your children, your grandchildren, unto the things of the Lord? Are you partaking in the disciplines of the church? I always say this at our church. Did you know it takes about 1,000 hours from a child to go from 0 to 18? That's all we got, 1,000 hours of worship. 1,000 hours where you can say the Lord's Prayer and you can sing a mighty fortress as our God and you can hear... Sermon texts, some famous ones like John 3.16 and some obscure ones like some of the Psalms that are lesser read. You have a thousand hours. And I watch how quickly the generation of our church says, you know what? We'll throw those thousand hours away like peanut shells at the restaurant. If there's a soccer game, we go. If we're tired, oh, we don't need these things. If there's something else to be done, oh, we will do that. You know the nine-year-old is already halfway there. The 500 hours are spent. And if you spent the first couple years, well, the nursery's busy and other things are going on. And then there's work when you're in high school. And, of course, there's those middle years where soccer is so important. Parents, what would keep you from that hour a week? Grandparents, are you a part of it? What would keep you? Are you doing all that you can to ensure that your generations are a part 
of these things. I fear that we may not be a generation that truly fears the Lord because we really fear everything else in this lifetime. You know, another reality at this moment about impressing them on your children is a word called discipline. There's a word called discipline. The Bible teaches it. The Bible gives very specific instructions about it. And yet I'm watching a culture that says no way, no how, and a church that says we better listen to culture at this moment. You know what discipline really teaches in the household? Whether or not you, you believe the gospel. Whether or not you believe the word of God. Whether or not you believe that children are born into sin. That there is great sin and it needs a remedy. You do not teach about who God who loves them so much. Uh, you do you not, you not uh, embody a God who loves them so much as scripture says that God disciplines us like a father. Those whom he loves, he disciplines. You don't teach them about this God if you don't teach order and discipline in a household. A lot of talk about discipline. In my experience as a pastor, very little of it going on. Discipline is also a wonderful opportunity, and my wife is a specialty, a specialist at this, and I'm so blessed to watch her at work. I'm kind of the enforcer at night, but she does it all day long. We don't discipline just to get good behavior, although that's a, that's a lovely byproduct. We discipline because it leads our children to understanding their own sin. Their own need for Jesus Christ. Ted Tripp's book, Shepherding a Child's Heart, is a wonderful book. If you want to encourage your own household or another one when your child lies and you need to correct that behavior, discipline doesn't just correct the behavior, but uh, discipline reminds your child that they are a sinner and that they need Jesus Christ. And the underparent, the earthly parents, are only under shepherds at this moment. They need the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. Finally, this passage says, you're to talk about these things when you sit at home and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your home. Homes where these things are upon your hearts. Homes where these things have been instructed to the children are now to be homes uh, where these things are embodied all the time. When we're at home, when we have opportunity to display things in our household, when we are uh, able to engage in this world when you talk, when you sit at home. And no doubt about it, during great times of Reformation, we see the church not only functioning in the church, but also the notion that family devotions were a part of these things. Discussions around the table, discussions before bed, prayers in the morning, prayers in the evening. We are called uh, to these things. It also says when you walk by the way, worship, when you are uh, instruct in the things of the Lord, when you're out and about in this world with your household, one of the things I encourage you greatly, when you travel, worship. When you travel, worship. Uh, I've got three boys. It's always difficult to get them in a presentable shirt and pants, and there are times we regret it when we're leaving the hotel room doing it, and yet every time we do it, every time this sinner does it, <laughs> he is blessed. Even in some of the difficult experiences we've had, we've learned to appreciate certain things of the Lord when you walk along the road. When you walk along the road, look for every opportunity. Your household is a place to instruct in the things of the Lord. You know, an interesting thing has happened in my household. After 50 years without a dog, I had a dog till I was one years old, and my parents had to choose between me and the dog, and I won out. But 50 years later, our 12-year-old son convinced us to get a dog. And uh, you know how it works. Uh, they say they're going to take all responsibility, and then uh, uh, I'm learning to be a more responsible dog owner at this moment. But every once in a while, I can get them to go with me, and I'm using that walking of the dog, not so much to talk about the formal things, the catechisms, the scripture memory, just to talk about some of the practicalities. The other night, we were walking the dog, and he's now 13 years old, but house by house, there's a lot of decorations out this time of the year. And I said, Mac, which of these households, if you had your own household someday, which of these households 
reflects the light and the truth and the grace of the living God you know to be true. And we walked down the street. It was an informal conversation. And there was one house that had some pumpkins and some corn harvest things. And he said, Dad, that's pretty neat to see a reflection of creation, the harvest. I agree, son. Next house had a graveyard going with all the corpses coming up. I don't know, Dad. I don't think that's the true and living God. The next house had a Scooby-Doo that was dressed up with a cape, a big dog, inflatable. And we couldn't come to a conclusion on that one. But it was a good discussion, at least to think, dear son, about how you will run your household. And when you make these decisions and you steward over whatever's in your front yard for the rest of your life, you'll have great opportunities. Again, this passage says, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Again, written on the doorposts of your houses and on your gates. Not only talked about within the home, it's a lovely thing in the home. It's renewed in Jesus Christ in a, what I'll call a natural way, not an unnatural way. But just the home being who she is in Jesus Christ posts things and says things that are different than other homes. I brought along something from my office. This thing is called a mezuzah. It was part of the Jewish home. I went to a high school that was half Jewish. Didn't get to go to Webster Groves, but I tried my best, Pete. Uh, but this were put in the Jewish homes, and they would actually write the Shema and put the scripture on their door frames. Halfway up, it would sit in angle. This one says Shaddai on it. Uh, that's how the Israelites did this very practically. By the way, uh, the, these, uh, it was, uh, the Shema sometimes does include additional passages, but Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 was the traditional passage put on there. But we are called to promote the word of God in every opportunity. When we have guests home and the things that they see in our household and what we may be on display, the things that we talk about that. Have fun with that one. There's all sorts of opportunities. We hosted the varsity soccer team the other night for a pasta party. The boys all came running in, and boy, did they come running in, and boy, they were hungry, and they were just about to devour and take the food right out of our refrigerators and not even using plates and cups and just starting to stuff themselves. And I said, boys, in our household, we pray. And we pray in Jesus' name. And uh, they were respectful. I'm not sure what came of it uh, as a result, but uh, my own, my son who plays on the team did say, Dad, afterwards there were some boys who really appreciated the fact that there was order unto God. And even one talked to me about, he prayed in Jesus' name. What does that mean? I got a call from my other son who is at MSU, and I'm just thankful for what the Lord is doing. He's got involved with a Christian group and Bible study, and he's worshiping there. And I asked him how Bible study was this week. He said, Dad, well, we didn't do Bible study, but we actually went out and we knocked on doors. And he said, Let's talk. I want to talk about the living God that we know to be true. These are by God's grace alone. Yet what a wonder it is when a household, just because of its renewedness in Jesus Christ, begins uh, to shine the light of this world. By the way, one little practical parenting, grandparenting tip, never ask your child this. Was VBS fun today? Was Sunday school fun today? You know what that is? Just more world talk, blah, blah, blah. Don't do that. What would you learn? What scripture did you read? Uh, maybe even say, what, what uh, deeper things of God did you come to understand? Let's get out our Bible and read that again in our home. Be a part of the renewing work of the gospel. I conclude today by reading one more account of the New Testament about a home that was transformed by Jesus Christ, by the truth of the cross, by the truth of his resurrection. By the way, you read the book of Acts, that's the gospel they were talking about, not some of these other things that we've come up with today. Acts 16 says this, there was a jailer. He woke up, and when he saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped, for he thought all was lost, Acts 16. But Paul was still there, and he cried out in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you 
and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Friends, the work of the gospel is a work for the household. And may our households be transformed by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the truth of your word. We're grateful that you have told us who you are and what we are to do in loving you. And we praise you that in our own sin and in our own falling short, you have sent us Jesus Christ and have loved us well. And through his name, we do love you. We pray that even more of these things would be upon our hearts and even more. You would show us how we can sharpen our own households unto these things. Help us to make the most of these opportunities. And we pray that as we conclude a week and begin a week, a new week next week to your glory, that you would be glorified and honored in our households. Thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is Lord and Savior of the home. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Too long.